On the 22nd of October 1962, President Kennedy went on primetime TV and announced that American forces had discovered Soviet nuclear missile bases on Cuba. Kennedy solemnly announced he was setting up a blockade around Cuba. He called it a quarantine, since a blockade was in fact illegal. Soviet ships, laden with missiles, steaming towards Kennedy's ring of US warships, has become one of the best-known images of the Cold War. But Kennedy's quarantine was not at all what it seemed. Hello. Good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Cuba missile crisis spun onto the edge of nuclear war, not because the missiles the Soviets had put on Cuba were any serious threat to the United States. It's hard to believe, given what we've always been told about the crisis, but the most likely reason seems to be that President Kennedy's domestic policies were in a mess. As we've already seen at the History Cafe, Kennedy's political opponents were also accusing him of weakness because it had been obvious for months that the Soviets were shipping something to Cuba, but he'd done nothing about it. By October 1962, crucial midterm elections were due any time. What Kennedy needed was a spectacular foreign policy victory. So instead of negotiating with the Soviet Premier, Nikita Khrushchev, which is what America's allies and much of the American press wanted, Kennedy went on primetime TV and announced a naval blockade of Cuba. He called it a quarantine. Most accounts of the Cuban Missile Crisis take Kennedy's broadcast and his quarantine at face value. But we've already discovered enough about this crisis to know that nothing Kennedy does or says is quite what it seems. And his quarantine is no exception. The fact that it wasn't going to begin for another day and a half already suggests that things were not quite as they appeared. Of course, you might imagine it would take time to organise an anti-submarine aircraft carrier, three cruisers, 16 destroyers and 150 other ships. But even this isn't what it appears. Kennedy's commander-in-chief had ordered his forces to get in position to impose a blockade around Cuba on October the 3rd. Yes, that's right, October the 3rd. That's 12 days before the missiles were discovered on Cuba. It was all part of American contingency plans to contain the Soviet military build-up there. It was to be ready to go into operation from October the 20th, two days before Kennedy's TV show. So Kennedy's brilliant move, so widely applauded ever since, was in fact a plan that had been agreed and set up weeks before. In fact, there was no reason why, with a bit of quick work by the US Navy, couldn't have been put into place almost from the start of the crisis. And if Kennedy had seriously wanted to prevent the Soviets getting their missiles up and running, it could have been put into place from the moment his TV show ended. Instead of which, there was a delay of a day and a half. Time for many of the Soviet ships that had been steaming across the Atlantic for the last seven days to make a final dash for Cuba. For all the Americans knew, they could have been laden with missiles and warheads. They were. One of them, the Alexandrovsk, was carrying almost all the Soviet nuclear warheads. And the delay in implementing the quarantine gave her time to steam safely into port. It's been calculated that she was carrying three times the explosive power of all the bombs ever dropped. And that explosive power was now safely stowed on Cuba. So much for a quarantine. Now, far from being impressed with Kennedy's courage and commitment, as ExCom had proposed, America's allies were furious. 
The acting Secretary General of the UN, Uthant, he was Burmese and U means mister, fumed that he couldn't believe his ears. This quarantine was a declaration of war. The British also immediately declared Kennedy's quarantine illegal and refused to allow their ships to be stopped. More important, they wanted this thing solved, not a naval battle on the high seas. If Soviet missiles were ever fired in a war, Britain would be first hit, not America. The British ambassador in Washington persuaded Kennedy at least to push the quarantine line back 300 miles west to allow the Soviets time to turn around and avoid a confrontation. Even so, British parents told their children nuclear war was about to begin. Anyway, Kennedy's quarantine was never about America's allies. Kennedy cared less about what the British thought, or Mr. Fant at the UN, than about American voters. Nor was it in reality about stopping Soviet ships reaching Cuba. The whole quarantine exercise was never anything more than a show, a sham. We know that because we have the records left by sailors who were there. Peter Huxhausen was aboard the US destroyer Blandy. He remembers the first ship approaching the line. It was a Swedish freighter, which ignored all orders to stop and sail right through. We know now that one of the US commanders radioed Washington for permission to open fire and was told to do no such thing. At some point over the following days, Naval Chief Admiral Gorgeous George Anderson would get into a furious row with Secretary for Defence McNamara about what to do if a Soviet ship refused to stop. McNamara angrily shouted that there was no question of opening fire. This is not, he said, a blockade, but a means of communication between Kennedy and Khrushchev. McNamara didn't add, though he could have done, it was mainly a spectacle staged for the benefit of American voters. If the Soviets chose to sell through, that was fine so long as nobody got to hear about it. Next to arrive was, in fact, the Soviet tanker Bucharest. She too sailed through without stopping. Maybe there was a problem of communication between the American side and the Soviet. Despite their weeks of preparation for quarantine, the American Navy was so uninterested in stopping Soviet ships, they had omitted to bring along any translators. Nobody opened fire on the Bucharest, but Huxhausen's ship, Blandy, was sent in pursuit. As it happened, one of her ratings was Czech, Walter Dubich, and he spoke some Russian. Just a hundred miles off Cuba, Blandy caught up with the Bucharest, and Dubich was put in charge of sending signals. Most of what he sent, so Huchthausen later discovered, was obscenities. But eventually the Soviet captain signalled back, saying that he was carrying heating oil. Uh, yeah, well, it was 32 degrees on Cuba. Anyway, Huchthausen and a party of other sailors were sent across to investigate. But since they had no means of knowing what was and what wasn't heating oil, wasn't much they could find out. We now know that somebody put a call through to the White House, and Kennedy instructed the US Navy to let the Bucharest through. She was quickly on her way. So far as Huchthausen could see, the quarantine was nothing but, he said, grand theatrics. Meanwhile, the Soviet freighter Marukla had appeared. The US destroyer, Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., was dispatched to intercept her, and an unarmed boarding party crossed over. They discovered that Marukla was filled with military electronics. It was exactly what the quarantine was designed to cut off. So what did the American sailors do? They handed out some sweets to the Soviet crew and allowed them to sail on for Cuba. Finally, another Soviet tanker, Vinitsa, sailed right through, saying she was carrying petrol. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was that. Press men were eager to know how the quarantine was going, and the Kennedys put up Assistant Secretary of Defence Arthur Stiles to answer the questions. Whatever happened to Arthur Stiles? The poor man had to admit that dozens of other vessels had gone through US lines, and none of them had even been stopped. 
Kennedy's Republican opponents began to smell a rat. The Republican congressional campaign team began accusing Kennedy of orchestrating the whole missile scare to win votes at elections. As they pointed out, claiming that the missiles had suddenly appeared on Cuba was brazenly false because everybody had known about the Soviet military build-up for months. Weeks before, early in October, Congress had sanctioned the use of force against Cuba. As we know, the CIA and the military had been discussing what to do about it all year. Letters to the newspapers began asking bluntly whether the quarantine was just a stunt because the president's electoral campaign wasn't going well. As well they might. And why, journalists began asking, had it been the destroyer Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. that had been involved in almost the only real action so far? Wasn't it just too much of a coincidence that it just happened to be the very naval vessel that had been named after the president's own brother, the one who'd been killed in the war, and launched by his sister, the same boat from which the president and his wife had watched the America's Cup a few weeks before? Pure coincidence, said the Pentagon. Oh, yes? Well, as we've seen in our early discussions about the crisis, the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, understood all about American elections. He knew that American politicians do and say crazy things in election campaigns. He realised the Cuban situation could get very quickly out of hand. So without even waiting for the blockade to begin, Khrushchev had quickly and quietly ordered most of the remaining Soviet ships on the high seas, and all those carrying missiles, to turn around and come home. It meant that some of his longer-range R-14 missiles wouldn't make it to Cuba. But it didn't make much difference. He already had all of his R-12s in place and most would soon be ready to fire. A huge number of battlefield nuclear weapons had also got through, along with nuclear bombs for the old Aleutian 28 bombers. His first objective had been achieved. We've saved Cuba, he told his top brass. And he was right. There would never now be an American invasion. But of course that wasn't how the American public were told the story, nor the way it's mostly been told ever since. As the quarantine finally began, news programmes broadcast film, apparently showing Soviet ships laden with missiles still steaming resolutely towards the American line. Sleepless news anchors laid on the drama. Would the Soviets try to break through? And then suddenly, as if by some miracle at the last minute, just when confrontation and war seemed inevitable, they reported that the Soviet ships had turned back. This is the moment when the usual story tells us Secretary of State Dean Rusk nudged Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy and muttered the famous words, we're eyeball to eyeball, and I think the other fellow just blinked. It's become one of the most famous quips of the Cold War. In a deadly game of chicken with nuclear missiles, Khrushchev had blinked first. Kennedy's brilliant policy of facing him down with firm but limited military action had saved the world. It's a myth. Rusk may or may not have said the words, but Michael Dobbs has shown that the closest the missile-carrying Soviet ships ever got to the quarantine line was about 750 miles. They'd turned back before the quarantine had even started. Many historians now give Khrushchev the credit for acting quickly, unlike Kennedy, once his plan had been discovered. He, Khrushchev, had defused the crisis. Kennedy could now have got on with the business of diplomacy, at last acting the statesman and negotiating a deal. But this crisis was much, much harder to stop than it had been to escalate. Kennedy discovered that he'd let the genie out of the bottle. Instead of negotiating with the Soviets as soon as he discovered their nuclear missiles on Cuba, Kennedy had allowed the crisis to escalate. It looked like the perfect way to win votes at the midterm elections in less than three weeks. 
should have known better. During the crisis, he was reading Barbara Tuckman's brilliant new book, The Guns of August, which would go on to become the most famous of this distinguished historian's works. It charted, in anguishing detail, how the countries of Europe slid into war in August 1914, a war that nobody, or hardly anybody, wanted. It's a subject we're going to revisit in another series of our History Cafe podcasts, with chilling evidence from inside the British cabinet. But anyway, Kennedy ignored the warning of Tuckerman's book and allowed events to slide steadily and horribly towards nuclear war. He didn't attempt to start any negotiations with the Soviets, even when he discovered he'd created a monster. America's allies were furious he'd refused to negotiate. But his military chiefs were screaming for him to invade, or at least bomb Cuba, and stop, as they put it, frigging around. And much worse things were happening at sea and in military bases. American forces had been moved to Defence Condition 2, one step short of actual war. Tens of thousands of soldiers and airmen now had leave cancelled and were living by their planes and missile silos, not only in America, but also in Britain, Italy, Turkey, Cuba, and of course the Soviet Union. Nobody told them it was all just a show. As Kennedy's security adviser Robert McNamara reflected many years later, the indefinite combination of human fallibility and nuclear weapons carries a very high risk of a potential nuclear catastrophe. On Cuba, the commander of the Soviet military forces, General Issa Pliev, was waiting for orders to deploy his smaller battlefield nuclear weapons against the Americans if or when they invaded. Smaller nuclear weapons is, of course, a relative term. Pliev's battlefield nuclear warheads each had a quarter of the explosive power of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. With Soviet support, Shay Guevara stationed himself and an army of Cuban guerrillas in Pina del Rio, running his operation from a secret cave. He would hold out for as long as it took to destroy an American invasion. Well, when that many highly armed personnel are living on the edge of their nerves, scary things start to happen. When Kennedy allowed the crisis to escalate, he hadn't calculated on military people having a mind of their own. To avoid triggering catastrophe, he'd ordered Operation Mongoose, the CIA mission to remove Castro, to shut down for the time being. But Bill Harvey, the man of the CIA with the closest connections to the Mafia, decided instead that this was the best time to attack the Cuban regime. So he himself took the decision to drop 60 American commanders onto the island with orders to bomb bridges, tramways, ports, and even, inexplicably, the Chinese embassy in Havana. Remember, there had already been at least 5,000 acts of US-backed terrorism on Cuba that year. Had Harvey's latest wave of attacks succeeded, it would only have been a matter of time before General Pliev concluded that an invasion was on its way and took a decision to use those scary battlefield nuclear weapons. On the 26th of October, day 12 of the crisis and two days into the quarantine, Curtis LeMay's US Air Force aggressively chose to test an intercontinental nuclear missile in California. By a stroke of luck, the Soviets didn't detect it. But on the same day, NASA launched one of their own test rockets from Cape Canaveral, 370 miles from Cuba, and it nearly triggered military defence systems primed to fire back if any missile was detected coming from Cuba. The next day, both US and Soviet forces exploded high-altitude nuclear test devices. The American one was appropriately codenamed Calamity. A U-2 plane sent up to collect samples from Calamity strayed into Soviet airspace and was nearly shot down by Soviet fighters. As all this mayhem broke out around him, all Kennedy could say was, there's always some son of a bitch who doesn't get the word. 
Meanwhile, late on 24th of October, day 10, journalists had been drinking at the bar of the National Press Club in Washington. They'd been issued with passes for the next day to join the US force in Florida, poised for a possible invasion of Cuba. One of the barmen eavesdropping on their conversations at the club happened to be a Soviet informant. He got a message urgently off to Moscow. What he'd missed was that the press passes had only been issued as a contingency and that no go-ahead had yet been given for an invasion. But in the tension of the crisis, that was understandable. For some hours, Moscow believed that an American invasion was actually on its way. The deputy Soviet ambassador in Washington was quietly instructed to invite one of the journalists from the bar conversation to lunch the next day. Only when he accepted did the Soviets know that he wasn't going to Florida after all, that the invasion wasn't about to happen. Understandably, tension on Cuba became intolerable. Cubans later recalled putting their children to bed each night thinking they would all be wiped out by the morning. On the 27th of October, Russian forces on the island shot down an American U-2 spy plane. Moscow sent angry messages that whatever the local commander thought he was up to, he should not on any account use those devastating battlefield nuclear weapons with a quarter of the strength of Hiroshima. But Sergei Mikoyan, son of Khrushchev's deputy, who's made his own study of the Cuba crisis, concluded that had US Air Force Chief Curtis LeMay launched the airstrikes he argued for relentlessly in XCOM, or had there been an invasion, the Soviets on Cuba would definitely have used their nuclear weapons. As Kennedy said with bitter humour about his hawkish military, these brass hats have one great advantage in their favour. If we listen to them and do what they want us to do, none of us will be alive later to tell them that they were wrong. Even worse things were happening at sea. The US Navy patrolling around Cuba had a policy of dropping very small warning depth charges. They went off just a few metres down and were meant to persuade Soviet subs to surface. Kennedy had reluctantly given the go-ahead, but nobody had told him that the Soviet subs were armed with nuclear torpedoes. On 27th of October, US sailors took it into their heads to encase key parts of the depth charges in loo tubes before dropping them. It had the effect that the charges descended much further, exploding right alongside the Soviet subs. At a conference in 2002, a Soviet submariner aboard submarine B-59 said that it was like being in an oil drum someone was hitting with a sledgehammer. Soviet records released in 2000 show that the crew of B-59 believed war must have broken out. They couldn't contact Moscow without surfacing and were running out of oxygen and power for the air conditioning. The temperature aboard climbed to 50 degrees. Desperate, the captain ordered his men to prepare to fire the nuclear torpedoes at the American ships overhead. We're going to hit them hard, sink them all. We ourselves shall die, but we shall not stain the Navy's honour. By great good fortune, Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov, the commander of the whole Soviet submarine flotilla, happened to be aboard B-59, and he countermanded the captain. So B-59 surfaced to find itself alongside a US destroyer, where a band on deck was playing Yankee Doodle Dandy. The Soviets concluded that war had not broken out. They catched some bread and cigarettes, sailed along for 10 hours to recharge, and then quietly slipped away. In 2002, Kennedy's Defence Secretary, Robert McNamara, declared that Vasily Alexandrovich had saved the world. So, in this respect, the usual story about the Cuban Missile Crisis is quite right. The world was 24 hours from nuclear war. Maybe more like 24 minutes. But it wasn't because Kennedy and Khrushchev had their fingers on the nuclear button. It was because the American president's escalation of the crisis had put intolerable pressure on many thousands of young men with nuclear weapons in their hands. 
which explains why, as we've quoted, American philosopher Noam Chomsky has described Kennedy as playing Russian roulette with nuclear war. Kennedy's election ploy to allow the Cuba crisis to escalate brought the world to the brink of destruction. But even after setting up the quarantine in order to make his show of force, Kennedy refused to negotiate with the Soviets. Or we should say, he refused to negotiate publicly. More than seven days into the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy had passed up every opportunity formally to negotiate a peaceful way out with the Soviets. It seems he thought it would play badly with the voters in the upcoming make-or-break midterm elections. But behind the scenes, something different had begun to happen. On the 21st of October, day seven of the crisis, and the day before his TV broadcast, Jack Kennedy put in a call to an old friend, Charlie Bartlett. Charlie was a journalist and had been the man who'd first introduced Jack to his wife, Jackie. As we'll see in our last podcast in this series, Charlie Bartlett has quite a role to play in the Cuban Missile story. But back to 21st of October, this was now five long dangerous days after Adlai Stevenson, US ambassador at the UN, had written his memo recommending a straightforward deal to swap the Cuban missiles for similar NATO missiles in Turkey, Italy and Britain. An idea already floated weeks before by the CIA. The proposal had been turned down in XCOM and Kennedy had done nothing about it. He hadn't even mentioned it to the Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko when he met him face to face on day three with the incriminating photos of Soviet missile emplacements in his desk drawer. But now, over the phone, Kennedy explained the idea of the Turkey missile swap to his journalist friend Charlie Bartlett. A couple of days later, we're now on day nine of the crisis, one day after Kennedy's broadcast and one day before the quarantine came into effect, Charlie went along to the National Press Club. And the man he met there was none other than Georgi Bolshakov, the Soviet spy, the man the Kennedys had used as a back channel to communicate off the record with Moscow. In fact, Bartlett and Bolshakov met at the club twice that afternoon. The club was just across the road from the White House, and the second time they met, Bartlett came back with those top-secret aerial photographs of the missile emplacements on Cuba. They were apparently the very ones from the President's own desk drawer, because they were clearly marked for the President's eyes only. Well, having established his credibility, Bartlett told Bolshakov that he was authorised to propose the Turkish missile swap to Khrushchev, the deal Adlai Stevenson had suggested to Kennedy more than a week before. In fact, these were not the only meetings Bolshakov had that day. He also met another New York journalist, Frank Holman, the man who'd originally introduced Bolshakov to the Kennedys. This time, Holman claimed to be working for Bobby Kennedy, President's brother. Clearly, the Kennedys were making sure Bolshakov got the message. According to Bolshakov's report, Holman also claimed he was authorised to say that the US would liquidate its missile bases in Turkey and Italy and the USSR would do the same in Cuba. At last, on day nine of the crisis... Kennedys were doing something to defuse the situation by proposing the straightforward deal with the Soviets that had been available to them since day one. But they were doing it in deep secrecy, through a creaking lineup of journalists and a Soviet spy, when you remember that Moscow had actually stopped using as a diplomatic channel. Since they didn't even consult the members of XCOM, this was an approach they could have adopted on day one. But they hadn't. Starting the same day as the journalists' meetings with Bolshakov, 
We now know through the work of historian Toshihiko Aono that the Kennedys had started a parallel and almost equally secret negotiation within the United Nations. American diplomats privately put pressure on the Irish to propose exactly the same Turkish missile swap at a general disarmament conference involving 18 nations. It was a kind of backstop in case the Bolshkov talks came to nothing. A UN disarmament conference would, after all, have taken a very long time to set up. In fact, it would barely have been discussed before those all-important midterm elections. For Kennedy, the important thing was that, in the meantime, nobody must breathe a word of any of these deals. There'd be no public negotiations, which might look disastrously weak just before the midterm elections. Nobody must be able to accuse Kennedy of rolling over in the face of Soviet aggression, with the poll just a couple of weeks away. So what became of those oh-so-clever secret back-channel approaches to the Soviets, which were supposed to broker a deal and defuse the danger without the American voters ever finding out? What the Kennedys hadn't taken into their calculations, because they hadn't allowed any experienced Kremlinologists into their secret back-channel, was that Bolshakov was now out of favour in Moscow. The Kremlin preferred to do business openly through their embassy in Washington. That, of course, the Kennedys were reluctant to do. What the Kennedys' clever plan failed to take into account was that nobody in Moscow was reading the messages sent through Bolshakov. So while Soviet captains aboard B-59 and at least two other Soviet subs were readying their nuclear torpedoes for use, and while on Cuba, General Pliev was considering whether to shoot American planes down and get his own devastating nuclear arsenal ready to repel an invasion, the Kennedys' ramshackle secret negotiations went nowhere. Frustrated with the complete lack of talks and apparently grasping the way the Kennedys worked and the circumstances of the American midterm elections, Khrushchev now tried to get a private message to the White House, this time through another journalist, John Scarley, who was working at ABC News. What is significant is that all Khrushchev asked for was an American promise not to invade Cuba. No mention of Berlin. It was so simple a deal that Kennedy could have offered it on day one and avoided the whole shooting match. At that point, he'd already cancelled the invasion anyway. Kennedy informed Excom of Khrushchev's offer, and the journalist Scarly was told to tell his Soviet contact in Washington to pass a message to Moscow that the Americans were interested. But there were still no formal negotiations. Meanwhile, events were picking up speed. It was at this point, on 24th of October, day 10, that Khrushchev heard the garbled intelligence from the press club barman, the report that made it look as if the Americans were about to invade, Decided he'd had enough of playing games with journalists. Kennedy wasn't going to handle this situation properly. Khrushchev was. He hastily wrote a long, impassioned letter direct to the American president. We must not succumb, he wrote, to intoxication and petty passions, regardless of whether elections are impending. If indeed war should break out, then it would not be in our power to stop it. I have participated in two wars and know that war ends when it has rolled through cities and villages, everywhere sowing death and destruction. Khrushchev urgently repeated his offer to withdraw the missiles if Kennedy just called off the invasion of Cuba. The letter was rushed along to the American embassy in Moscow at 5pm Moscow time on the 26th of October, day 12. That was 10am Washington time. But nobody seems to have told the embassy staff how serious the situation was. Kennedy only got the translation at 9 o'clock that night. When next day, XCOM heard about it, they thought it was just a long-winded confirmation of the offer Khrushchev had privately made through Scali. It looked like the crisis could be satisfactorily resolved within a few hours. But then Khrushchev changed his mind.
Frustrated with the complete lack of negotiations from Kennedy, Khrushchev had offered to withdraw his missiles from Cuba in return for a simple American promise not to invade. Then Khrushchev changed his mind. What exactly led Khrushchev to up his demands is a mystery. It's been suggested that he'd been scanning the American press, which indeed he often did. Once news broke of the Soviet missiles on Cuba, many journalists, and in particular the well-respected former diplomat Walter Lippmann, had come to the sensible conclusion that Kennedy should just do a swap with the missiles on Turkey. Everyone, it seems, except Kennedy, was happy to discuss the idea in public. It's even been suggested that Khrushchev believed that Lippmann's article was a plant from the White House, a coded message for him from Jack. It may very well be that, on the other hand, Georgi Bolshikov's messages had finally reached the Soviet president with the Kennedy's offer to do the Turkey missile swap. It may be that when the invasion scare from the US press barman turned out not to come to anything, Khrushchev decided he'd given in too easily. It may be that for all these reasons, or because of internal Soviet political manoeuvring, Khrushchev was under pressure from his presidium to ask for more. At all events, on 26th of October, day 12 of the crisis, once Khrushchev's first long letter had finally reached the White House, Bobby Kennedy quietly slipped out for an off-the-record meeting with the Soviet ambassador to Brenin. He presumably thought he was just going to shake hands on Khrushchev's original no-missiles-for-no-invasion deal, hopefully without the American electors ever finding out. But when he got to the Soviet embassy, he found that Brenin was demanding the Americans also remove the Turkish missiles. Of course, Bobby couldn't admit that he and his brother had been peddling exactly this deal for days through their dodgy back channel behind Debrinian's back. So he feigned surprise and went off to ring Jack. He came back saying that the president confirmed that we are ready to examine favourably the question of Turkey. Debrinian cabled the good news to Moscow. The next day, 27th of October, day 13, the very day an American plane strayed into Soviet airspace and the submariners on B-59 were hotly debating whether to launch nuclear war, Khrushchev announced to his presidium that he was formally going to demand the removal of the Turkish missiles. If we did this, we could win, he said, perhaps betraying another reason for escalating his demands, the possibility that some in the room thought removing his missiles just for an American promise not to invade Cuba would be something of a climb down. Unlike Kennedy, Khrushchev was impatient to reduce the international tension as soon as possible. As he said, the smell of scorching hung in the air. He wanted the new terms sent immediately. With the escalating military situation on the ground, and after the long delay at the American embassy in Moscow getting his previous letter translated and sent, he proposed writing a new one and having this one read out on Moscow radio. What happened next has passed into Cold War mythology, as we'll discover next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.